going to study the 1689 London Confession, chapter 16, Good Works, and that's found on pages 678, 679 in the back of the hymn book. Now let's pray and ask God's blessing as we consider this rich heritage that we have from our forefathers. Father, thank you for the rich heritage of understanding of truth that you've given to us, the privilege that we have of studying it this morning. We pray that as we do, you would send us the Holy Spirit, give us a clear understanding of this vital aspect of the Christian life, that we would glorify you more and more on earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, in chapter 16, the Confession of Faith sets forth the issue of what they call good works. Now, in this chapter, they follow very closely, essentially, with maybe one or two very minor exceptions, essentially verbatim, the Westminster Confession of Faith of the earlier generation. Now, as I try to outline this chapter of the Confession, I see it divided into two basic parts. And it's not the way that I would approach a topic if I were dealing with that topic from the standpoint of systematic theology. If I were dealing with the topic from the standpoint of systematic theology, I would try to examine all the biblical data on good works and then try to find the inherent biblical categories and then present everything it said without adding, without subtracting, and hopefully without distorting it. But this is not a systematic theology, it's a confession of faith. And one of the things characteristic of confessions of faith is that they are polemical. That's a nice fancy word for you this morning. You like that word? Polemical? That wouldn't wake you up, does it? Right. Basically, it has to do with addressing errors and correcting errors from the scriptures. For example, if you take the canons of the Synod of Dort, there's, a, there's another bunch of jargon for you. Canons comes from not kaboom, like Ron shoots in the yard, but from the Greek kanon, meaning rule. So it, it's Really, it's, this, it's the dogma of the Synod of Dort, which is a synod that met in the city of Dortrecht in 1618, 1619. And we refer to it today as the five points of Calvinism. And, and in those ecclesiastical rules, they were addressing something. They were addressing very current errors that were disturbing the Reformed churches in Holland. And so in each one of their presentations of a head of doctrine, they presented first the positive doctrine and then the correction of errors, that he may be able both to exhort in the sound doctrine and to convict the gainsayers. And in my judgment, that's what's going on in this chapter. In this chapter which is based essentially on what the Westminster Assembly wrote a generation earlier, almost verbatim. 
in this chapter, in the first three paragraphs, they present the features, the prominent features of good works. But in the last four paragraphs, what I think they're doing is they are addressing and correcting four prevalent errors regarding the issue of good works. And I think this is just too much information to try to cover all of it in one class. So what I plan to do this morning, God willing, is first of all to open up paragraphs one through three that set forth three prominent features of good works. And then next week, God willing, open up paragraphs four to seven, four prevailing errors regarding good works. So that's the way in two weeks that I want to try to open up this chapter of the Confession of Faith. First, the three prominent features, the standard of good works in paragraph one, the vital role or functions of good works in paragraph two, and the powerful, supernatural, or efficient cause of good works in paragraph three. And then in paragraphs four, five, six, and seven, they address the errors that were then prevailing with regard to good works. The error of so-called supererogation in paragraph four. The error of penance in paragraph five. The error of perfectionism in paragraph six. And the error of Pelagianism in paragraph seven. So they have supererogation, penance, perfectionism, Pelagianism. And that's why they basically repeat and you say, well, what's supererogation? What, 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 what's penance? What's, what's perfectionism? What's Pelagianism? Those are reasonable questions. Are you going to answer them? No. Not this morning, no. God willing, assuming that I survive the week, assuming that you survive the week, we will get an answer to those questions next week. But this morning, what I want to focus on is not the errors that they thought that the Westminster Assembly regarded as important enough that they needed to address them. But what I want to address this morning are what they had to say about the prominent features, three prominent features of good works. And the first is the exclusive standard of good works. The exclusive standard. The exclusive standard. Good works are only such, only such, that's why I use the word exclusive, as God has commanded in his holy word, and not such as without the warrant thereof, that is without the warrant of his holy word, are devised by men out of blind zeal, 
or upon any pretense of good intentions, plural, in the 1689, I believe the Westminster Confession had it in singular, any pretense of good intention. Now that's the only difference. So to me that's not a significant difference. So what do you have? You have the positive idea, the right standard. The right standard is scripture. Then you have the negative, the wrong standard, man-made rules and traditions. Good works are only such as God has commanded in his holy word. They appeal to Hebrews 13.21, that he would make you complete in every good work to do his will, his will as revealed in his word, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight. But what they don't do, and so I think I need to say something about it, they never specifically spell out anywhere exactly what his word says a good work is. They don't exactly expressly tell you anywhere what, what the Bible says about it. And so I want to say something about that briefly. What does the Bible say about good works? How does it identify good works? Well, good works in the saints reflect the goodness of God. And the goodness of God has a dual focus. It's like a target. It's got a broader focus, and then it has a narrower focus, a bullseye. God's goodness and its broadest focus is his propriety. That is, his commitment to do what is right. But in the narrow focus, his goodness is his beneficiality. That is, his commitment to do what is beneficial. So, in the broadest sense, good works are doing what is right, what is morally right, and not what is morally wrong, not evil. And in the narrowest sense, Good works are doing what is beneficial, what is gracious, kind, compassionate, merciful, all those things that reflect the goodness of God in its narrower focus. So good works are doing what is right, and good works are doing what is beneficial. Now notice there are a couple of passages of Scripture that underscore this. First of all, in 1 Timothy 5.10, well reported of for good works. When he's talking about the, the qualifications for women to be set apart in a special way in relation to the church, that they need to be well reported for good works. And then he begins to define what those are. If she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she's relieved the afflicted, if she's diligently followed every good work. And when he gives directions to the rich, in 1 Timothy 6, 16 and 18 and 19, he says, about them, charge them that are rich to do good, that they be rich in good works, willing 
rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. Charity, benevolence, kindness, goodness. Rich in good works, ready to give. So that the special focus of good works is on doing what is beneficial, what is kind, what is gracious, what is generous, reflecting that aspect of the goodness of God, which is its special focus. And the broader idea of good works is doing what is right, what is morally good, as opposed to what is morally wrong and evil. This is what scripture says. Hypocrisy has as one of its telltale signs an effort to rip these things apart. To rip apart the broader from the narrower. And an illustration of that kind of hypocrisy, case in point, would be Jesus' encounter and teaching of the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, verses 18 to 27. It says, good teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? You know the commandments. Don't lie, don't steal, honor your father and mother, don't commit adultery. Do what's right. Don't do something that's radically morally wrong. And the guy says, I've done all these things from my youth. I, I, never, I never stole anything. I don't tell lies about people. I don't cheat on my wife. I don't do that kind of stuff. Jesus said to him, take, go, sell what you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. Well, he didn't want to hear that. So he was willing to say, look, okay, I'm not lying, I'm not cheating, I'm not running around on my wife, but when it came to benevolence, generosity, kindness, he wasn't about to go down that road. He went away sorrowful. Another illustration of it is the depiction of the hypocrites on Judgment Day in Matthew chapter 25, 31 to 46. What does Jesus say these people did? Does he say, you went out and committed adultery, you were a bunch of thieves, you were liars? No. What did they do? The answer is absolutely nothing. They didn't do anything. But they should have done something. What should they have done? They should have done good works. What good works? Jesus says, I was hungry. You didn't feed me. You didn't do anything. I was thirsty. You didn't do anything. I didn't have enough to wear. You didn't do anything. I was in prison. You didn't do anything. I was sick. You didn't do anything. You didn't care. You didn't visit me. You didn't feed me. You didn't clothe me. You didn't do a single solitary thing that you should have done. There's a, again, with hypocrisy, there's an attempt to sever the broader from the narrower. You think of good works as, well, I don't tell lies, and I, I, I don't steal, and I don't cheat on my wife. Yeah, okay. 
It's a little more. It involves a little more than that. It's not just what you don't do, the evil you don't do. There's a whole lot more to it. There's also rich in benevolence and in kindness and in caring for the practical needs of other people to the glory of God. So that's what that's what that, that's the concept of good works. The standard of good works is what the confession feature, features. It features that the standard of good works is scripture. But then the have to ask the question, well, what does the scripture say about it? And what the scripture says about it is that our good works reflect the goodness of God. And God's goodness has a broader and a narrower focus. And it is doing what is right, and it is also doing what is beneficial. And we should never rip those things apart. Because that's what hypocrisy does. Then they also feature the wrong standard. Man-made rules and traditions. And here the confessions cite Matthew 15.9, but in vain do they worship me, teaching for their doctrines the precepts of men. Man-made rules. Man-made rules. Good works are not defined properly by the rules that people make up, but by the rule that God gives in his word. And for thousands of years, men have made up their rules, which they impose on the consciences of others, in order to define, in their mind, what good works are. And the Pharisees of Jesus' day were masters of man-made rules. But let's move to the second point. So you have the right standard, scripture, the wrong standard, man-made rules and traditions. Second prominent feature of good works, not only the standard, but also the vital role or functions of good works. And in paragraph two, the confession, to my mind, highlights three distinct important or vital functions. These good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. So the first important or vital function of good works is that they are attestations or evidences of genuine saving faith because they are the fruits of it. Then they spell out six aspects of a second important function of good works. Notice it says, and by them, that is by good works, believers manifest their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, edify their brethren, adorn the profession of the gospel, stop the mouths of adversaries, and glorify God. So they specify six things, six benefits. So good works uh, produce or give rise to manifold spiritual benefits or blessings. 
and they specify six of them. And then the third important function is this. Notice at the end. Whose workmanship they are, that is true believers who do good works, created in Christ Jesus thereunto, that is, for good works. That, what's the purpose of it? Having their fruit to holiness, they may have the end, eternal life. See, the the third function of good works that they specify is not only are they the evidence of genuine faith and the instrument of tremendous spiritual blessing, but they are God's appointed way of of attaining eternal life. They're the way of life. So let's open up then these three aspects of the vital role or tremendous importance or functions of good works. First of all, good works are the evidence of genuine faith. They are the fruits and evidences of a, quote, true and lively faith. James chapter 2, 18 and 22. Yes, a man may say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And they go on to quote verse 22, that it was through Abraham's works that his faith was made complete. But then they specify six ways in the second uh, function. Six ways in which good works give rise to spiritual blessings or benefits. They display gospel gratitude. They enhance Christian assurance. They edify Christians. They commend true religion. They silence God's enemies. And they honor God. First of all, they display gospel gratitude by which believers, quote, manifest their thankfulness. How do I say thankfulness? How do I say thanks to God for all he's done for me? I serve him. Psalm 116, 12 and 13, they quote, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I'll take the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Secondly, Good works enhance Christian assurance. By by them, believers, quote, strengthen their assurance. They appeal to 1 John 2, 3 and 5. And hereby we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. That's good works in the broader sense. And then, in 1 John 3, 18 and 19, good works in the narrower sense. My little children. Let us not love in word, that is word only, neither with the tongue only, but in deed and truth. Hereby, when we're filled with love and practical good works to those in need, hereby we will know that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. So it's interesting that they cite texts which appeal both to the impact in this regard of keeping God's moral law, and also to the special focus of showing benevolence and love 
to the needy and how these things, these good works, in the broader and narrower sense, are a means of grace to enhance and strengthen the assurance of believers. And by them, in the third place, they edify Christians. Quote, edify their brethren. They appeal to 2 Corinthians 9.2, how the, um, the generosity, the commitment of the Corinthians stirred up many others. I know the forwardness of your mind for which I boast of you to them of Macedonia, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up very many. Fourthly, good works commend genuine religion. They, quote, adorn the profession of the gospel. He, and they appeal to the book of Titus, chapter 2, verse 5, that women are to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands. Why? That the word of God be not blasphemed. And then, in exhorting servants how they to behave, he says that by behaving this way, showing all good fidelity, they may, quote, adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Fifthly, they silence God's enemies. They, quote, stop the mouths of adversaries. First Peter 2.15 is the text they appeal to. For so is the will of God that with well-doing, with doing good, in the broader and narrower sense, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. And finally, good works honor and glorify God. For Matthew 5.16, let your light shine before men, that so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And then the third and final function that they feature or highlight is that a life of good works, this kind of a life is God's appointed way or path that leads to eternal life and there is no other path that leads there. Whose workmanship they are created in Christ Jesus thereunto. That is, they're quoting Ephesians chapter 2. They're paraphrasing it. Created in Christ Jesus for good works which God before ordained or prepared that we should walk in them. And they're also, they're alluding to Romans 6.22, being now made free from sin and become servants of God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end, everlasting life. There's only one kind of life that leads to heaven. And it is the kind of life that God has before prepared that every one of us who believes in Jesus would walk in it, and that is a life of good works. In the broadest sense, it's a life of evangelical gospel obedience to God's moral law. And in the narrowest sense, it's a life of love, practical, compassionate, benevolent, gracious, kind, helping, doing good to those in need. That's the way of life that leads to heaven. There's no other path that goes there. And God has ordained that every genuine believer walk in that path. So good works function as the God-appointed way to heaven. Good works function as a means, a manifold spiritual blessing. Good works function as the evidence 
the essential evidence of genuine saving faith. And then finally, this morning, paragraph 3 addresses the exclusive cause or source of good works, which the confessions define as the enabling work of the Holy Spirit. This is what they say. Their ability, that is the ability of genuine believers to do good works, is not at all of themselves, but wholly. That's again why I use the word exclusive. Wholly, completely, entirely from the Spirit of Christ. That the exclusive source or cause of good works is the enabling work of the Holy Spirit. The ability to do good works is not at all of themselves, but wholly, completely, entirely, exclusively from the Spirit of Christ. And then they feature two things. The absolute necessity of the Spirit's enabling and the proper response to the Spirit's enabling. The absolute necessity and the proper response. The absolute necessity and that they may be enabled thereunto besides the graces they have already received. There is necessary an actual influence of the same Holy Spirit to work in them to will and to do of his good pleasure. And they quote from Philippians 2, 12 and 13 that the, this work of the Holy Spirit is absolutely necessary. It is indispensable. And if we will and if we work for his good pleasure, the only way that ever happens is when the Holy Spirit produces that in us. So if we are willing, wanting, intending, purposing, resolving to please God, to do good, to do what he wants us to do, to obey his moral law, and to be filled with practical acts of love, if that's what we purpose, resolve, intend, the Holy Spirit produces that in us. And his work is absolutely necessary to produce that inward disposition. And then, not only to will, but also to work. If we are actually striving, if we are doing outwardly in the body what we are outwardly intending, purposing, and resolving in our hearts and wills, that also is produced by the Holy Spirit. He works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. And without his working, we neither will nor work. But if we're striving, and if we're resolving, and purposing, and intending, that is the fruit of the Holy Spirit working in the Christian heart. And there's no other way that, other hap that ever happens except 
from the work of the Holy Spirit. And they cite other passages. Um, they say John 15, 4 and 5, apart from me you can do nothing. They cite the, the promise of the new covenant. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes in Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. They cite 2 Corinthians 3, 5. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. So they cite various passages, but the, the, the basic fundamental text is that text in Philippians 2. That's crucial text. So I wanted to feature that. So that's the absolute necessity of the Spirit's enabling. It is the Holy Spirit. If you want to please God, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. If you're trying to please God, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. There's no other way that that happens if the Holy Spirit doesn't produce it. That's what the confession says. And then it also, it's got a balancing statement because it also has the proper response to this. It said, well, this could, give, this could have a danger inherent in it that we say, well, if I, if I can't do anything apart from the Spirit, then I, then I just have to just let go and let God and all that. No, no, no. They say that's not the right response. Here's the proper response. Yet, there's a balancing concept. Yet, they are not hereupon, that is because the work of the Spirit is absolutely necessary, to grow negligent. There, that's, this is not justification for negligence. As if they were not bound to perform any duty unless upon a special motion of the Spirit. But they ought to be diligent in stirring up the grace of God that is in them. So the fact that we totally depend on the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit to produce in us the intent, resolve, and effort to please God that doesn't justify just letting go and letting God, in the language that the confession uses, it doesn't justify negligence. As though it wasn't our responsibility. As though it was the Spirit's responsibility. It's our responsibility that we can't do it without his enabling. And that doesn't justify our negligence. You say, well, that seems to be attention. Yeah, but that's what Paul said. You work out your salvation. You be the instrument of producing your own eternal heavenly salvation because God's working in you. So the fact that the Holy Spirit's working in you is no excuse for negligence. And that's what the confession highlights. And of course, in order to support that, they quote the other half of the text. They quote Philippians 2.12. Wherefore, my beloved, even as you've always obeyed, now not as in my presence only now, in my absence much more, produce, work out, bring about your own salvation, that is, eternal salvation in the future, with fear and trembling. You are to be the instrumental means of bringing it about because God's working in you. And there's this tension. The work of the Spirit is absolutely indispensable. It just, that doesn't justify negligence, neglect. So they have the absolute necessity and proper response to the Spirit's enabling. So that's what I wanted to cover 
this morning. The first three paragraphs, the what I would regard as three prominent features, the standard functions and cause of good works. Any questions or comments on what we've looked at this morning? 